If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1 in just a moment. As you turn there, let me just say that I am so excited about our coming to the Lord's table today. Uh, We have not taken communion together as a church family since the first Sunday in March. And as our leadership has been planning how we would regather and what that would look like, we put a priority on as soon as possible coming to the Lord's table and taking communion together in a a way that is safe for everyone. Now, why would we put a priority on coming to the Lord's table? That's what I really want to talk with you about in this sermon today. It'll be a general overview. If you want to know more, we actually had a six-week series on the Lord's Supper in July and August of 2017. You can find that on our podcast, Redeemer Shoals, wherever you download your podcasts. But for today, as a result of that study, as a big picture overview, let me just say this. Why is the Lord's Supper such a priority for us as a leadership? Here's why. Because God loves to meet with his people over a meal in a way that draws us closer to himself and closer to one another in a way that uses all of our senses He always has loved to do that and always will. And I want to show you that from the scripture here today. So if you have your Bible, I'm in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27. This is the creation of men and women. And I want you to look and see how long is it before God gets to eating together. Let's see how long that takes. We're in the first chapter of the Bible. Uh, Let's see, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Wow. It's like the third thing God says to people after he makes them, right? First, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with other people, with other images of God. The second thing he says is to rule over the earth and have dominion over it. If you want to know more about those first two things, you can go listen to the sermon from February the 2nd of 2020 that's also on our podcast that focuses on those two things. But we're looking at the third thing today that God says in verse 29. That he gave the people food to eat. God has always wanted us to use our senses. He even gives us good food to eat. Think about it. We could just take in food and not taste it, right? God didn't have to give us taste buds. But he made us with taste buds so we can enjoy food. And God wants us to use our senses in a way that honor him and bring pleasure to us. Keep going as we look in God's word. Genesis 2 and verse 8, we're told that God planted a garden in Eden. In Genesis 2 and verse 9, we're told, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Think about that. They're pleasing to the eye. They're aesthetically beautiful. God made a world of beauty. And he gave us eyes to see that, to take that in. Not every organism sees things like we do, right? 
God in his grace has given us five senses to take in the world. And even our sight, even this, these, this nature that is beautiful to the eye, God could have just had us see in black and white. He allows us to see color, vivid colors. And so these trees are beautiful and they're good for food. God gives us this good food that we're able to enjoy. Verse 10 says that there is a river flowing through the Garden of Eden. And those of us who live here in the shoals know all the sights and sounds and smells that go along with the river and how that engages our senses. Verse 11 says there's gold in the land. Verse 12 says gold and onyx. There are even aromatic resins. The ESV identifies it as delium. So there are things that appeal to even the sense of smell. God says specifically here in the garden. But I want to look at verse 16 with you because we tend to run past verse 16. Look at it. That's where the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now, I know verse 17 says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the middle of the garden, for when you eat of it, you will die. And we tend to focus on verse 17, because, of course, if you haven't heard this story before, God created all things good. Things become broken and messed up because men and women disobey God, and they don't live life the way he designed it to live. And so we tend to look at verse 17. There's this tree they weren't supposed to eat from that they did, and that's why things are broken and messed up in the world now, right? Because we didn't live life the way God designed it to be lived. But can we focus on verse 16 this week? God said you are free to eat from any tree in this paradise that I have placed you in. Think about that. God is so permissive. He's so liberal in his giving. He is so gracious. What did the man and the woman do to deserve this? Nothing. He just gives it to them in a way that appeals to their senses. This is an important point. You might wonder why I'm doing here. Here's why. There are people who do not want to follow the God of the Bible because they perceive the God of the Bible to be a a stingy God. A God who wants to put his people in a straitjacket so that we don't enjoy anything, that he kills all joy, that he doesn't want us to have any sort of pleasure. I want you to understand, if that's your hesitation, listen to me, that's not the God of the Bible. He's the one who gave you your senses. He is the one that calls us to experience things with our senses. He's the one that created beauty He's the one that created sex and sexuality. What's the first thing he said? Be fruitful and multiply. Think about that. What's your theology of sex and sexuality? God's not surprised by that. He invented it. He made it for us. Yes, God has limits to the good creation that he gave us. We don't just eat with no regard, even though it's good, right? We don't want to be gluttons. God places limits on food. He places limits on sexuality. I would love to talk with you about those things, about what God permits and what his limits are. But know this, that the limits he places are are not to keep us from experiencing joy or pleasure. He places those limits because he knows how he designed us to live. And he wants us to walk on the safe path and enjoy these things, as we say today, enjoy them responsibly, right? Enjoy them in the way that we should. So I'd love to talk with you more about that. I've got to keep moving here. I've got to get to the Lord's table, right? Just know that right here in the garden that Adam and Eve enjoyed all the abundance of the garden, which engaged their senses. And from the very beginning, every time Adam and Eve ate a meal together, they fellowshiped with God directly and with one another. 
And even when this direct fellowship with God was broken, God in his graciousness continued to provide other opportunities to meet with his people over a meal because God loves to meet with his people over a meal in a way that draws them closer to himself and closer to one another in a way that uses all their senses. Let me give you a few examples as we walk through the scripture. Exodus 12. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. He frees his people. We'll look at Exodus 12 more closely in a moment. But at that time, God instituted a meal where they regularly celebrated in order to remember what God had done to redeem them. If that sounds a lot like this table, it should to you. Because we regularly come together to celebrate and to remember what God has done to redeem us, which is exactly what Jesus said, right? Do this in what? In remembrance of me. How about Exodus 24? After giving the Ten Commandments, God takes the leaders of his people up on the mountain, and they meet with God, and they ate and drank in God's presence, and they ratified a covenant as God met with his people over a meal, you do realize that the Lord's Supper is also a time of covenant ratification, or it might be more precise to say covenant renewal. You recall Jesus said, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So every time we come to the Lord's table, we participate in a covenant renewal ceremony over a meal as we connect with God and are drawn together closer to one another in a way that uses all of our senses. Leviticus chapter 3, Leviticus chapter 7, there's something there called a peace offering. Your translation may say a fellowship offering, and it's a really interesting sacrifice because typically with sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament, you put the sacrifice in the altar and they just burned it up, right? It all went to God and it was a sacrifice to you. You gave it up. You didn't get anything back. It was a sacrifice. But in this sacrifice, there was the typical shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And the sacrifice was placed on the altar. But then after it was on the altar and burned for a while, the worshipers actually got to eat some of it. They would partake in the sacrifice that had been placed on the altar. Think about that when you think about the Lord's table, coming to the Lord's Supper. Isn't that exactly what we do? There has been the shedding of blood for the atonement of our sin. And then as worshipers of Jesus, we partake of the sacrifice of his body, of his blood, in a real but spiritual way as we come to the table. And of course, this reminds us of the fact that God has always loved to meet with his people over a meal in a way that draws us to himself and draws us closer to one another in a way that uses all of our senses. When God came... In the flesh, in the New Testament, through the person and work of Jesus, God came. And, and do you realize what his critics said about him? When God came in the flesh, he ate with people and drank with people so often. He was with people eating and drinking, even people that seemed to be far from God, that didn't seem to be religious kinds of people. Here's what his critics said. In Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. That was the critique of him. Because God has always loved to eat a meal with his people. 
in a way that draws them closer to himself and closer to one another, in a way that uses all their senses. Jesus celebrated the Passover as a Jewish man growing up as a Jewish boy. He instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of a Passover meal. And I want you to understand that just as those Old Testament sacrifices and meals pointed to this table, this table is not the end, right? This table points to something else. Did you know that? Our experience doesn't end here. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record Jesus saying that he will not eat this meal again until when? Until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? I'm not exactly sure. But maybe he's referring, I know Jesus says in Matthew 8 and verse 11, he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe he's referring to Revelation 19, that wedding feast of the Lamb, where where the Lamb, Christ, our Passover Lamb who has been slain, is joined to his bride, the church. And there's a celebration, like a wedding reception. Where we as the church are the bride, we even have a place of honor there. And there's a feast that takes place. I don't know how it's all going to look or how it's all going to work, but I do know this. For all eternity, we will feast together in the presence of God and with one another because God has always and will always love to meet with his people over a meal in a way that draws us to himself and in a way that draws us to one another in a way that uses all of our senses. Now, this meal is just a foretaste of that meal. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are changed and we are shaped as the people of God to fit us for Heaven, as a way in a manger says, right? How does that happen? How does this table shape us as the people of God? How does it really change us? Well, I want to spend a few minutes talking about that. And I want to do it from Exodus 12. So if you're in Genesis, flip one more book over to Exodus chapter 12. Why would I start there? This is where God institutes the Passover meal, which is what Jesus uses to start the Lord's Supper. And if you read the New Testament accounts, the New Testament presupposes some understanding of the Passover meal in order for the Lord's Supper to make sense. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of weird if you don't know about the Passover meal. Jesus just kind of randomly takes some bread and says, this is my body. And then a cup of wine and says, this is my blood. That's kind of odd. What was he saying? What did he mean? Well, when you say that in a Passover meal... With 12 Jewish men who have celebrated the Passover all their life, those elements meant something to them. And it meant something when Jesus said that they stood for him, that they pointed to him. So let's get a little bit of understanding as we begin in Exodus chapter 12. The best way to understand the Lord's Supper is to actually go through a Passover meal yourself, which is why we do that once a year. So if you want to save the date, April 2nd of 2021, that's Good Friday We will gather together, hopefully, in this room if the uh, circumstances allow and celebrate a Passover meal together. But a little bit of information. Exodus 12. God's people are in bondage in Egypt. God has sent plague after plague. He sent Moses to Pharaoh who refuses to let his people go. And now God's about to send the 10th plague. Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Let me stop right there. 
God is saying, look, this redemption that I'm about to accomplish for you, I want that to be the beginning, a new beginning for you. I want you to actually change your calendar to mark this act of redemption that I am going to accomplish and, and to celebrate and to remember it by this meal that I'm about to institute now. That is so interesting to me. Do you realize we do the same thing? We order all of human events, our entire calendar we measure by that act of redemption that freed us from the slavery to our sin, right? All of human history we measure is how many years it was B.C. before Christ and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. It's, you know, today, July the 5th of 2020, which means it's roughly 2,020 years since he was born. We measure history that way. But even more than a change to our calendar, I want you to realize what this table means for us personally. This table is an invitation to have a new beginning. It's a reminder that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. That God wipes the slate clean of our sin and the things that we've done to fall short of his glory. And more than that, he gives us the very righteousness of Christ himself. And so this table is an invitation to a new beginning. I hope you'll hear that as we come to the table today. Let me keep going to the text. Verse 3 says that the whole community of Israel is to come together. Verse 6 says all the people of Israel. You need to understand that this is not an individual thing, right? This is a meal for the whole community. And you'd be saying, well, is that just for the Passover meal in the Old Testament? Is that the case for the Lord's Supper in the New Testament? And yes, it is. If you read the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, as he talks about the Lord's Supper, he wants us to be very concerned, not just with our vertical relationship with God as we come to the table, but he wants us to be concerned about our horizontal relationship with one another. And if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, down around verse 20, Paul is very upset because the church at Corinth is coming to the table and, and they have divisions among them. And they are disrespecting one another because of their differences that they have. And Paul said, listen, when you come together to take the Lord's Supper and you have these kind of divisions and this kind of disrespect for each other, I don't know what it is you're doing, but it's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. It's something else. Because this meal is a corporate meal where we come together and we're drawn together as the people of God. Yes, there is an individual aspect. We individually are more connected to Jesus as we feed on him in a real but spiritual way. But there's also something going on corporately here that we're more connected to one another. Listen, that's why we don't take private individual communion. That's why we didn't have you take communion online. And I know other people have done that, and that's fine if that's what they want to do. But our reading of the scriptures of church leadership says this is a corporate thing. This is something that we come together and do together, not as individuals, but as the people of God gathered together. And as we do that, let me just reiterate the word that the Apostle Paul has in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's not come to this table with divisions among us. Let's not, come down, let's not come to this table looking down on those and disrespecting those who also come to the table and take the Lord's Supper with us because that's not what this table is 
out. More on that in a moment. Let me keep moving. What did they do in the Passover meal? Verse 5 says that they took a lamb that was without blemish or defect, that they would slaughter the lamb, that they put the blood on the doorpost of the house, and then they would cook the lamb and eat it that night. And then the Lord would deliver them the next day. That's kind of weird. Why would they do that, right? Look at verses 12 and 13 of the text. Exodus 12, starting in verse 12. God is speaking. He says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Oh, that's where they get the name Passover meal, right? So do you hear what's going on? God is saying that his judgment will fall on those households that are not covered by the blood of the lamb. But for those who slaughter the lamb, there's been a sacrifice that substitutes for the firstborn, that that lamb has died in the place of the firstborn. And that the blood is a sign to God. And that you eat the lamb to partake of the redemption that is ours. To avoid God's judgment falling on us. You realize that's, that's the gospel, right? God's judgment will fall on those who are not covered by the blood of the lamb. We talk a lot about justice today. And I want you to understand that God is a God of justice. And he is going to make all things right. All oppression will cease. All injustices will be dealt with. God will see that that is the case. But that creates a problem for us. Because we've committed injustices. All people have committed injustices. We have been guilty of that. So while we rejoice that God's going to make all things right, what about the fact that we've done things to make things wrong? And we see the answer here in the Passover meal. That the punishment for our sin will either fall on us, or it has fallen on Christ, our Passover lamb. One of the two, God is just and he will punish sin. But for those of us who avail themselves of the lamb, who are covered by his blood... Those of us who partake of the lamb, who have that substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, we are able to stand in the day of judgment when God makes all things new. And that's why the blood is so important. It's kind of weird in our day. It's kind of archaic. Really, blood? Yes, the blood is the sun being covered by the blood of the lamb is what shields us. The wrath of God for the injustices that we've committed, which is why we're going to sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Keep going to the text. Verse 14 says, this is a day you are to commemorate. If you have the ESV, it says this is a memorial day. It's a day that you are supposed to remember. Now, we've talked about this remembering a couple of times and how Jesus says you do this in remembrance of me, right? Well, I need to tell you, as 21st century Americans, we tend to think of remembering as a cognitive recollection, right? Will I remember to pick up milk on the way home? 
right? Well, I remember that. We just think, is it going to come to my mind? But I want you to know that the Hebrew mind, to remember is much more than just mental recollection. It's something that shapes our attitude and our actions. You actually pick up the milk if you remember it, right? That it's something that changes the way we live our lives. That to remember changes the way we lean into the world. Let me give you a couple of examples. Number one. When the Apostle Paul becomes an apostle and he goes to the other apostles, do you remember what they told him? Remember the poor. Now, that didn't mean that Paul was every once in a while just supposed to say, I remember there's some poor people out there. They're there. They don't have stuff. And then just go back to his life, right? To remember the poor meant to remember that they were there and to alleviate their suffering, to do something to make their situation different than it was. That to remember, yes, affected his mind, but also the way that he acted in the world. In the scripture, another example. When God says, you have forgotten me, or when we're told to remember God, those who remember God worship him and walk in his ways and obey him, and those who forget God are those who are unfaithful and disobey. So when God, when Jesus at the Lord's table says, do this in remembrance of me, you need to understand this is not simply a mental cognitive exercise that we go through to remember what Jesus did a long time ago. And then we just live our lives in a way that doesn't make a difference. As we remember his sacrifice for us, it changes the way we lean into the world. Now, how would it do that? Here's one. If Jesus lived in heaven where he was worshipped and adored and had everything that he ever wanted, but he was willing to leave that place of status, that place of comfort, that place of privilege, and he was willing to come into the world and be mistreated and misunderstood so that we could be in heaven, so that we could get there, even though we don't deserve that, even though we've done nothing to deserve it, then certainly followers of Jesus who come here and remember his sacrifice and what he did for us as we leave and live our lives, certainly that would lead us to be people who are not here to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away to other people. Surely that because we have been forgiven much when we didn't deserve it, we would be a people who would be willing to forgive much. Surely those of us who have tasted the grace of God, his goodness to us when we didn't deserve it, would be people who would be quick to extend grace to other people when they don't deserve it, which is the definition of grace, right? Unmerited favor, they don't deserve it. This table should affect the way we live our lives. I've talked about the blood and the table. Let me say just a word about the bread before we come to the Lord's table. You see here in Exodus 12 and verse 8, we're supposed to eat unleavened bread. Verses 17 through 20 talk about the feast of unleavened bread. I want to show you something about the bread in Deuteronomy. So if you're in Exodus, you're going to move over Leviticus, Numbers, and you're going to go to Deuteronomy 16. As you turn to Deuteronomy 16, and we're going to look at the bread, let me, tell you, let me give you the context. Deuteronomy 16, God does free his people from their slavery in Egypt. He brings them out in the wilderness. He's taking them to the land that he has promised to them where they're going to live, a land flowing with milk and honey. And along the way, I know this is probably going to be hard for you to believe, but God's people were grumbling and complaining and disobedient. I know, it shocked me too. 
But it got so bad. He had just let them out, and they start worshiping other gods, a golden calf and stuff. And finally, God just says, that's it. This generation's not going into the promised land, okay? Their children will, the next generation, but we're just going to stay here in the wilderness, in the desert, until this generation dies out. The next generation will go in. That's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy literally means second law, because they're about to go into the promised land. And these people that are hearing Deuteronomy weren't there for the exodus. They didn't hear God's voice on Mount Sinai. They weren't there for the giving of the law the first time in Exodus 19 to 24. And so this is the second giving of the law because this is a new generation that wasn't there. They didn't hear it before. Listen to what God says to them. In Deuteronomy 16, he talks about the calendar like he did in Exodus 12. In verse 2, he talks about the lamb. And look what he says in verse 3 about the bread. He says, Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread. Where'd it go? Here we go. The bread of affliction. Because you left Egypt in haste so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure or or exodus from Egypt. A couple of things about this verse. Number one, notice the remember language, right? That's important. We've talked about that. They are to remember God's act of redemption. But secondly, look what he says to people who weren't at the exodus, to people who were not there and were not led out of Egypt. Their forefathers were. But look what he says. He says, you eat unleavened bread. Why? Because you left Egypt in haste. That you are to remember the time of your departure from Egypt, he says, to people who did not literally leave Egypt in haste. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Oh no, is there a crisis? No, God knows these people didn't leave Egypt. What's he saying? What we're seeing here is a figure of speech pointing to the fact that by their participation in this meal... They participate in the act of redemption that their ancestors experienced firsthand and that through the taking of this meal, they are connected to the people of God who went before them. So when Jesus takes bread in the Passover meal and says, this is my body that is given for you, then Jesus is saying that by taking the bread, there's a connection between Jesus and And all those who eat the bread in faith were connected to that act of redemption. We partake of his redemption. And we're connected to the people of God who go on before us. Now, when you hear me say that, you may say to yourself, Now, wait a minute, Scott. I understand that Deuteronomy 16 and verse 3 says that of the Passover meal. And I'm seeing where it says that. But are you sure that's true of the Lord's Supper when Jesus takes the bread? Are you sure that it applies there, right? Because there are discontinuities between the Passover meal and the old. I mean, it's a different meal, right? There are discontinuities. Are you sure that it applies? And if you're thinking that, you should think that. We talked Wednesday night at Men's Group about you don't just believe anything a pastor says, right? He's got to have chapter and verse for it. But if you've been here long enough, you know that I'm not going to say it if I don't have chapter and verse. Because Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16 and 17. This will be the last two verses I look at with you before we come to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul writes, Is not the cup of thanksgiving... For which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. 
And is not the bread that we take a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body because we all partake of the same loaf. Now, isn't that the exact same analysis that we just went through in Deuteronomy 16? Paul says that in this meal, we participate in the shed blood of Christ, that we participate. The word, if you got the old King James, is communion. We have communion with the blood of Christ. The Greek word is koinonia, that we fellowship with it, that there's a connection to it, that we participate in the blood of Christ. And that when we take the bread, we participate in the body of Christ, that we participate in the act of redemption. And then if you think it's only talking about the work of Christ for us individually, then in verse 17 he says, But because there's only one loaf, there's only one Christ, we who are many are made one. We're one body because we all partake of the one loaf. He's saying we are connected. If we're connected to Jesus, we're connected to other people who are connected to Jesus. And that this meal, in a way that I don't fully understand, nourishes those bonds. And brings us together closer to the Lord and closer to his people. Such that the passage of time and the death of generations before us cannot sever the oneness of the covenant people of God that is created and sustained by this meal. One word of application. I told you I would come back to this. I want to be sure that I do. If that's true, if God uses this meal to bring us together then you understand why Paul would be so angry and why it would not be appropriate for us to come to this table with divisions or disrespect for our differences from one another when we come to this table. Paul says that's taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That that's not the Lord's Supper because this is about bringing together the people of God. Let me be very clear about that, because people always have a lot of questions. I don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. You realize that we don't all gather at Redeemer Church because we believe the same thing about all things, right? You know that. Let me start with an easy one, right? We don't all root for the same college football team, right? We have different loyalties. It's not why we gather here. We don't gather here because we all have the same preferences in music, because we have different preferences in music. I mean, we hear that, don't we? We don't all gather here together because we all choose to educate our kids in the same way. We don't all gather here together because we all vote for the same political party. We don't gather here together as a group of people because we have the same social status or we're of the same race because none of those things are true of us. What is it that binds us together? We've learned to say here at Redeemer Church that we don't agree on everything, but we agree on the most important things. And those for us we've defined as, number one, admitting that we sin and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody who's a member of this church is taking a vow that we are sinners, deserving God's displeasure and without hope apart from him. And number two, That our only hope is in the finished work of Christ on the cross alone. That's what gathers us together. Our agreement on those two things. That's what unites us as we come to the Lord's table. So let's not let the things that we believe different about divide us. Or let me be more specific. 
Let's not let that lead to a disrespect of your brothers and sisters in Christ, because that is not called for at this table. That is not what this table is about. God loves to meet with his people over a meal in a way that draws us closer to himself and closer to one another. He calls the whole community to come together in his presence as we celebrate the substitutionary sacrifice made on our behalf as Christ, our Passover lamb, without sin, without defect, without blemish, has been slain. And we partake of him, his body and his blood in a real but spiritual way. We remember what he has done for us, but that remembrance changes the way that we live our lives. It, it changes the way that we lean into the world. And as we participate in this meal, we're changed. And we're connected to God's redemption. We're more closely connected to God himself. We're more closely connected to God's people so that there is a oneness with God and with the people of God through all generations that is developed by this meal. And that's why we put a priority on coming back to this table. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do so in a worthy manner. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to your people. That you do call us together, not because we all agree on the same things, but because we agree on the most important thing. Father, I just pray for this body of believers that we would not let more minor things divide us. That we would look to you in all things. And that you would prepare us to come to this table and that you would do your work in a way that we don't fully understand. But that you'd be willing to do that this day using this meal. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.